The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles and open them to the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church, chapter 2. That is 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. The sermon that I want to preach today is our study of the Antichrist, and I'm trying to reorient us again back into that series of First and Second Thessalonians, and there probably hasn't been a time in years when a sermon on the Antichrist was timelier. This past year, with social upheaval, with the sexual perversion that's becoming prominent in our country, with the economic downturn, with political chaos that we experience, this is the kind of world that is conducive to the appearance of the Antichrist. Now, the Apostle John was undoubtedly right when he said, even now there are many antichrists in the world. And if you haven't seen that in this past year and you haven't seen it with what's going on in our government right now, then you are totally missing what the many antichrists are. We have many antichrists in the world. Now, today in our study of Paul's letter, we continue Our examination of the end times and the appearance of the wickedest person in the history of man. In world history, there have been some very wicked men. There have been men that have perpetrated terrible atrocities on others. Some of the worst that's been done has been done in the name of religion. When we think of the centuries-long inquisition of the Roman Catholic Church that there were nearly 50 million Baptists that were killed in the Dark Ages for preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And in case you didn't know it, the Roman Catholic Church has never rescinded the Inquisition. And then we're just about less than a century removed from the atrocities that Hitler perpetrated upon the Jews in the Holocaust, and then what Stalin did to his own people in Russia. And then we think of all the other things that are going on. We think about uh, that this very hour that there is persecution in China where the gospel cannot be preached in North Korea and other places where the gospel needs to reach. And it's but it's hated. And at the heads of these governments are are men who care nothing about human life. They are men who are power mongers. They have control over the bodies and the spirits of men. They control their bodies by taking away their freedom. Freedom such as we have to be here today to preach the gospel of Christ. They take away their spirits by not allowing them to hear the very thing that will save their souls from an awful torture and torment in hell. Now, as Americans, we are appalled when we hear these things. We are taken aback and we say, well, these people deserve their human rights. They deserve their freedoms. They need to. Be able to go about their business without interference from government and without someone telling them what they must do, where they must go and what they must believe. And yet at the same time, while we are appalled at that, we realize or recognize that our government and our people demand the right to kill the most innocent among us, little babies. 
human heart is capable of intense wickedness. And there are those that live out the worst depravity of the human heart in these unspeakable acts. And we talk about that and we say, "What? Well, but people deserve human rights. And we call them human rights. We call it the, the right to choose. Well, the truth is, as bad as it is, and with all we've seen in the history of man, we have yet to see the worst that will come upon this world, the worst that a person can do. We have yet to see how far down next to hell and how far away from God that people can go. I think we're experiencing some of it. We're on that we're on that downward course to see it, but we haven't seen the worst yet. We haven't seen it, but the Bible says there is a time coming when a man will come to rule this world who will be the worst. He will be the most powerful man that the world has ever seen. His power will not be over one nation and over just a small group of nations, but his power will be worldwide extensive. All the nations of the world will join underneath him and unconditionally turn over the reins of their sovereignty to him. And this is the man that the Bible calls the Antichrist. He is the world's last ruler and he rules in the world's last kingdom. This is a kingdom in which Religion and government are consolidated into a devastating, devastating empire. And so wicked is this man that the Bible has another name for him in the book of Revelation. He is called the beast. And though he is the beast, he's not recognized that way when he comes. He will come with a bewitching personality. He appears to be an economic savior. He comes at a time when the world is looking for someone to deliver them from the chaotic mess that's been created by the wickedness of human hearts. And yet even more, more importantly, from God's wrath that is poured out on this wickedness. And so he comes with promises. He comes, he says, with peace. He comes with hope and he seems to have all the answers. He comes with political savvy. And he also comes with hypocritical religious compassion. I mean, here is the man who does for the Jews or will do for the Jews what no one has done in the history of the world. He seems to favor the Jews and even allows them to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. He forges all the political and religious compromises that are necessary to make that happen. And in our world today, it seems like that could never happen. You go to Jerusalem today and... See who controls the Temple Mount. The Jews don't. The Jews have to have permission to go up there. Today, there are mosques that are on the Temple Mount. But that's going to be done away with in the time of the Revelation. Uh, that will be done away with, or at least those mosques will stand beside a temple that's been built there, will be built there by the Jews. But then one day, the Antichrist is going to take that temple over. And he will go into the temple, and he will sit there... And pretend that he is God. He's not interested in the truth. He's only interested in power. And he will seek power and gain power at the expense of everyone who joins him. Now, in our text of Second Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul describes him. Now, if you look at verses uh, two, uh, chapter two, verses three and four, Second Thessalonians, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth 
and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Then also in verses eight and nine. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. These are descriptions of the Antichrist. Now, even as I read that, I'm, I'm thinking maybe I should have gone back and chosen a different message. I mean, we've been through such hard times. Do we have to hear about more hard times? Well, thankfully, as the people of God, and we'll say this often as we go through and other messages as well, we're not going to see this time. Uh, we're, we're, going to, we're talking about things that won't happen while we're that will happen while we're already gone from this world. Um, but it, it's things that need to be preached. And as I said, that we find so many parallels to today's world. So these are descriptions of the Antichrist. Paul doesn't give us very much detail in this scripture, but he does say this much. He says that the Antichrist is the son of perdition. He's a man who fits the description that's given to only one other person in the Bible, and that is Judas Iscariot. He is a man of sin. He is characterized by sin, he opposes God, he exalts himself above God. And then, as I said, at the height of his power, he will go into a new temple that he allowed the Jews to build. He will take that over, sit in it and enthrone himself as God. Then further, he's enabled by Satan to do certain types of miracles to show signs and demonstrate inexplicable wonders. So the people will be fooled. They'll be enthralled by this man. They'll see his power and they believe that he can do anything for them. But what they don't understand, that he is empowered by Satan. And Satan is on the side of no one. Everything that this man does will eventually be against the people. He looks good at first because he satisfies, but he'll be a leader that takes them straight to hell. And unfortunately, what we're looking at in our world today is leaders that want to satisfy every purient interest of people. And they, too, are just leading people into hell. What they don't understand, again, Satan is Satan's power, how he does everything against them. Now, as we look into this text today, the apostle wrote to the church at Thessalonica. He wrote this 2000 years ago. And what he describes was not soon upon them. Two thousand years have now passed and we've. Yet to see these things that Paul talks about. Now, the question then is, why is the apostle so concerned about it? Why? Why is he talk about this? Why does he even bother with it when this is something that hadn't happened? And apparently they weren't in immediate danger of this happening. Well, the clues to all of this, that, that's in verse number two, where we see that Satan tries to ruin the assurance of God's people and their implicit trust in God. And so he wants to convince people that God is a liar. God doesn't care about his people. He doesn't protect his people as he promised. But, of course, we do know this, that God never lies. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church, he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He never lied. He never changed his mind. He didn't change on any truth that the Holy Spirit gave him. But verse two says that there was another spirit and there was a word and there was a letter that was contrary 
to Paul's teachings in the church. Now, that other spirit, that was false teachers who were influenced by demons. And we, we read much of that in Jude just a moment ago. The word refers to sermons and expositions of scripture, interpretations that are meant to confuse what Paul taught, to confuse the truth of God's word. But then that letter, we talked about this a couple of times in previous messages, that letter that was written, that letter was probably the most damaging of all of Satan's tactics because someone, it appears that someone wrote a letter, forged a letter and said, Paul wrote this. And in this letter, they said that the wrath of God's tribulation was here. And if that was true, that would directly contradict what Paul said. He promised them, you will not go through the tribulation. And he said the world or the church rather will be delivered before God pours his wrath out on this world. And so, yes, Paul was concerned about it because this was ruining the hope of Christians. They were nearly destroyed by this news that they heard. They lived in constant persecution and they mistook that for the end times persecution. But Paul said that God wouldn't do it. God says he won't do it. And if it happened, that meant that neither God nor Paul was telling them the truth. And if God doesn't tell the truth and the apostle of God doesn't tell the truth, then what hope do they have? Where are they going to find truth? So, yes, Paul He's very concerned about this. So Paul addressed these lies. He told them not to be deceived. And then he proceeded to show them why they were not in the end times. Tribulation is characterized by different events than they had experienced. Yes, there was persecution, but it was not the persecution of the day of the Lord. And so in these verses, Paul gave four arguments to prove That the church was not in the end times. It was not in the end times of the tribulation. And so he returned to the subject of what he talked about in the first letter about the coming of the Lord and about end times. And he gives us the proof that they were not living in the day of God's wrath. So he defined the end time with four important characteristics. Now, the first of these is that the tribulation is accompanied by worldwide Rebellion. Tribulation is accompanied by worldwide rebellion. In verse number three, he says, in the end times, there will be worldwide rebellion against God. There will be a great falling away from true religion. And there is an overarching reason for this, and that is that the church will be gone. The church will be delivered. The church is no longer in the world. It's raptured. It's taken out. And. All the missionary endeavors, all the preaching of the gospel has ceased. Now, across the world today, there are thousands of missionaries. The Bible is translated into hundreds of languages. The gospel is preached. People are being saved. And it's the church that has the authority to send out missionaries. It is the church that is always the pillar and the ground of the truth. Without the church, the truth does not stand. Without the church, missionaries are not sent. Without the church, the true gospel is not preached. And while it is true that there will be some witnesses of truth in those last days, supernaturally provided in some cases, and then also by the salvation of Jews, yet yet the, the preaching of the gospel in that time will be depressed, it will be put down, 
It's not enough to stem the tidal wave of apostasy, of unbelief, of false gospels, of worldwide rejection of the one true living God. Now, the Thessalonians hadn't experienced this. When Paul wrote this letter, he was at another church. He was there preaching the gospel. He was establishing more churches and the Roman Empire was being turned towards God. Uh, You know the history of this, that Christianity in the first century spread like wildfire. The world hasn't seen a time like that first century when Christians were so eager to spread the good news and churches were popping up across the, the known world. No, they weren't living in that time of in the time of the retreat of end times apostasy, but rather they're very right there in the center of the expansion of the church. And in fact, persecution fueled the expansion of the church. They were living in the spiritual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the second reason that they were not living in end times is the point of the message today. And this is that the tribulation is accompanied By the revelation of the Antichrist. Now, in verse three, Paul said in the day of the Lord, the man of sin will be revealed. This son of perdition will come on the scene. He's not here now. He will come then. Now, they 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 may have been confused about this because they were living in the Roman Empire and the emperors of Rome were exceedingly wicked men. They hated Christians as all the empire did. They were evil. They had much power, but they didn't have the kind of power that the Antichrist will have. Now, here's where in the last message I told you that we were going to slow down and we're not attempting to get to reasons three and four today. That comes next week. I want to talk about the Antichrist and what he will be like. The Bible describes him in other places, and so we're looking at these other places to see what kind of man he will be. Now, I would encourage you, if you didn't hear the introduction to this in the last message, you go back, listen to it. I don't have time to repeat all that information today. But what we started to do was to investigate the book of Daniel and see that The coming of the Antichrist was predicted hundreds of years before Paul spoke of him in this text. And there are many other Old Testament prophecies concerning him. But Daniel, Daniel is the prophet that gives the most explicit information. In fact, Jesus repeated the prophecy of Daniel in his teaching, specifically in Matthew 24. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet. So Jesus referenced what Paul says here in verse number four, that this man of sin, the abomination of desolation, which is another name for him, he will sit in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So he says, I am God. He claims to be God. He claims he has power over heaven and earth. And he is so convincing that the Jews, for all of these years that have been looking for Messiah and don't believe in Jesus Christ, they will believe that this man is their Messiah. Now, that's a testimony to the power of Satan. And I want you to think about this for just a minute. I mean, I do need to mention this, that there are those who think And they believe that a person by his own will can change his mind about Christ and believe. And it doesn't take any power above his own to cause him to believe. But we look at this and doesn't the power of Satan through the Antichrist dispute that? 
And don't the scriptures say that Satan blinds people to the gospel of Christ so they will not believe? And doesn't the Bible say that Satan is the God of this world and people blindly follow him? And doesn't it say that the devil has a power that people can't resist? Only deluded people think they can overcome the power of Satan. No, friends, God must do this. God must work in the heart to bring a person to belief in Christ. And if not, they will always and forever follow Antichrist until they follow them into the pit of hell. Only the Lord God can stop the plunge of a person into hell. And so be thankful that God Almighty unfailingly draws people to Christ or they will never believe. Well, the Antichrist has these highly deceptive powers. Why is that? Because Satan enters him. He is the son of perdition, as was Judas when Satan entered Judas. Now, that's true. But I want you to recognize that the Antichrist is not the same as Satan. He's not a fallen angel. He's not supernatural. He is Satan's tool. He resembles Satan, but he's not Satan. Now, there are some who believe that Satan is so skilled at imitation that the Antichrist is Satan's attempt at incarnation. Christ was the incarnate son of God. That is a miracle that cannot be reproduced. Satan cannot reproduce that, but he can fake it. And the Antichrist is his fake. Now, Satan is nothing but a created being. He's nothing like God. The incarnation of Christ can't compare to what Satan does. Christ was God in the flesh. But I don't think that we can say here that this is Satan in the flesh. It's a false incarnation. Satan is a wannabe. All he ever does is try to imitate Christ, to imitate God in as much as he can. He tries to fool people. So this incarnation is fake. And yet the Antichrist certainly does have all the immoral characteristics of Satan. Well, there are many questions about the Antichrist. Who is he? People want to know that. Who is he? Can you tell me who he's who he will be? Is he somebody that lived before and then went to hell, but he came back? And there's some people who think so. And this fuels speculation that the Antichrist is Judas resurrected. I don't believe that it's Judas come back to life. I don't think it's Hitler, as some people think. And others have proposed various other men that have lived. I don't think the scriptures support that a person can die and go to hell and come back. Satan doesn't have the power to raise anyone from the dead. And Satan certainly does not control hell. Now, we need to know that we, we call it a devil's hell. Well, everything in hell comes from the devil because of the wickedness and sin that he influences. But God is in control of hell, not Satan. It's not the devil's hell in that sense. And Satan does not have power to release anyone from hell. God said hell is eternal separation. He has no interest in letting people out of hell. But interestingly, the Antichrist is related to men in the past, related to kingdoms of the past. He has a family tree that uh, and he has an ancestry that's connected to the past, as all people do. Only this man is connected to the past in a much different way. Now, I want to show you this by by first going into the future, and then we'll take a look at the past. Now, if you'll turn your Bibles to Revelation 13, Revelation chapter 13, uh, if we had time to connect all the dots about the Antichrist, then 
I would spend time explaining the entire 13th chapter. This is a revelation of the future, and I don't have time to take you all the way through it, but I do want to show you a small part of it. Our study needs to move on from this, but we want to look at just a small part. We'll look at the first eight verses, and and we'll see the parallels that the two things that we've already discussed. Now, John begins in Revelation 13, verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, the heads there and the horns refer to kingdoms and to power. Verse 2, and the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. That dragon is Satan. You can find the identity of the dragon in chapter 12. He is the one that gives the Antichrist his power and authority. Verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is likened to the beast? Now, remember, where it says beast, just substitute Antichrist if you're confused. Who is like unto the Antichrist? Who is able to make war with him? Now, this is what we see. That's the worldwide apostasy that's spoken of in our text as people forget about Jehovah God and they run hastily to the Antichrist and worship him. He's the one who has been their political and economic savior and all this turmoil of the end times. Now, verse five, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Now, the Antichrist is brazen, and with the world following him, his head swells. He believes himself to be God. He's not afraid to blaspheme God. But we notice that he has only three and a half years in the tribulation to do his worst. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months, three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. That is the unified power of the Antichrist. Now, in the tribulation, he will persecute those that believe in Christ, especially Israel. Then eventually he'll overcome them. And he has power over all people on earth. Now, we notice here who will worship him, who will worship him. It's all of one class, but none of another. Verse number eight, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, except whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, the except was my word and the scriptures bear it out. The ones who do not worship him are those that God chose before the foundation of the world. All others will follow The Antichrist. Now, let's go back to verse 2. I want to show you this man in the future is connected to the past. Revelation 13, 2. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, that's our hint that there is a family history of the Antichrist. John saw a beast that was like a leopard. It had the feet of the bear. It had a mouth of a lion. And where do we read about those things in the past? 
Well, that would be in the book of Daniel. So we go back to Daniel, who is the most precise prophet of the Antichrist and the end time. So keep your finger there in Revelation 13. We'll be back. And now we go to Daniel chapter 7. This is a little bit of study time here this morning. So we'll study this and compare scripture with scripture. Now, in Daniel 7 is recorded one of Daniel's dreams. Daniel was a man of dreams. He was an interpreter of dreams. This is how he made his mark in Babylon. He was an accurate forecaster of others' dreams. That's how he arose to prominence. Now, Daniel, though, had his own dreams. And that's the way that God revealed the future to him. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld to the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side. And it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now we read that, that seems very, very confusing. If you had a dream like this, you'd call it a nightmare. This is one of the worst. What is this dream about? Well, we'll pick it apart. There are four beasts that rise from the sea. These are emblematic of four great empires. The first is a lion, and the lion represents Babylon. And we're taking these empires in the order that they appear in history. The first was Babylon. Uh, Daniel was then living in Babylon, and Babylon was a world empire. They had conquered the Jews and taken them into captivity. And I'm sure that Daniel could look out the window at all the public buildings and there he would see sculptures of lions. And that was a symbol of Babylon's power. Then it says that the lion had eagle's wings. That's symbolic. That refers to the swiftness of Babylon's power, how they quickly conquered. Some have suggested that this might refer to the story of Nebuchadnezzar and how God drove him out and made his hair grow like eagle's feathers and his fingernails were like bird's claws. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 4. In verse 5, there's a second beast. This one is a bear. Now, the kingdom that defeated and replaced Babylon was the Medo-Persian Empire. And you might remember that Daniel prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, and told him that Babylon would be consumed by the Medes and the Persians. Now, that fascinating prediction of the Persian takeover is in chapter 5. It's a, it's a great story. You know, Daniel's got so many great stories in it. Belshazzar was at a drunken feast. He was drinking out of the golden cups that had been stolen from the temple at Jerusalem. 
And as he sat there drinking himself into a stupor, out of nowhere there appeared a hand. And this hand began to write on the wall. The hand wrote, Meanie, Meanie, Tico, Eupharson. Belshazzar was scared out of his wits. His knees started to knock. So he called all the fortune tellers and all the magicians, all the wise men in the kingdom to interpret the writing, but none could. Then at last, Daniel was called, and he was the great interpreter of God's word, and so he read the handwriting on the wall. And as we've said, that's the source of that saying, handwriting on the wall. And it means that something inevitably bad is going to happen. And the handwriting on the wall said that the Babylonian kingdom would be taken from Belshazzar and given to the Medes and the Persians. And how inevitable was it? Well, it happened on that very night. It happened. The Persians took over. And this Persian empire is represented by the bear. Next, Daniel saw a leopard. Now, if you're a student of history, this just seems, this is totally remarkable to me. This is talking about the Grecian empire of Alexander the Great. That is just marvelous that you would find this in the word of God. Hundreds of years before it happened, that the Grecian empire under Alexander the Great would appear. And it was the Greeks who gave the world a common language. And that is the language of Greek that became the language of the gospel during the time of the apostles. And that's why the gospel spread so quickly around the world, because there was a common language that people knew. That started with Alexander the Great. Well, then there was a fourth empire, a fourth beast that rose that was mightier than them all. And this beast was so extraordinary that in the prophecy it says it had iron teeth. That's a symbol that this is an animal uh, and an empire that no one can deal with. This is the most powerful at all. The king, the kingdom that it's speaking of is the Roman Empire, and that's the greatest empire the world has seen. Now, the lineage of the Antichrist is that he has all the characteristics and the power of these former empires combined. He's mightier than them all. And his kingdom is the resurrection of the old Roman Empire in a far more terrible form. Now, I can tell you that you say, why the Roman Empire? Well, a lot of this has to do with religion. A lot of it has to do tying in the Roman Catholic Church into the prophecies here. Now, remember, though, that each of these empires was ruled by paganistic heathens. Now, in chapter 13 in Revelation, I believe that verse number three is an allusion to the Roman Empire. Now, if you'll turn back there, you got your finger there. You go back to Revelation 13, verse three. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, the head that's wounded is the old Roman Empire. This wound is healed, which means that the empire is resurrected. Now, it is interesting to us that pieces of the old Roman Empire are still present in today's world. You look at Europe's countries. Europe's countries are are the pieces of that former empire. And once again, they will unite and come under the world power of the beast. Now, looking at this, comparing it to modern our modern times, I mean, it's very interesting also to us that there is a European Union. That a few years ago, the Europe uh, began to consolidate. Many of Europe's countries use the euro as a common currency. 
And when you look at that, you think that worldwide government, one government over the world is not unimaginable, especially when there are leaders of our country that are willing to surrender our national sovereignty for a global economy. That's happening to us right now. Now, we we kind of pulled back from that in the previous four years, but we're headed in that direction right now. Give it all back. Give it all back. Sounds vaguely like the Antichrist, doesn't it? So you have these former world empires that make up the kingdom of the Antichrist. His lineage stretches back to these ancient empires cited by Daniel in the Old Testament. His kingdom is has all the greatest of these characteristics of the, these empires and combines them all into one terrible totalitarian state. So you have a lion, a bear, a leopard, some grotesque animal with iron teeth that represents the great kingdoms of the world that consolidate under the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, returning to Revelation chapter 13, verse number four, and they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like unto the beast, to the Antichrist, who is able to make war with him? So you combine all that firepower of former kingdoms, all the wisdom, which there was much worldly wisdom, all the tenacity of them, all the strongest features of them, put them all together and constructed from it is the coming world empire of the Antichrist. Who can stand against him? Where is an army that can withstand him? He's the greatest, most powerful leader of all time. You roll Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians and and Cyrus of the Persians, Alexander of the Greeks, Julius Caesar of the Romans, then Napoleon, Kaiser Wilhelm, Hitler, Stalin, communist China, all the Islamic states, roll them all into one. And they can't reach the power of the Antichrist. That's how powerful Satan is. Now, let me return to this thought then. Where does he get the power? Remember how I preached about this cosmic battle that's been going on since the beginning of time. This has raged since the Garden of Eden. The dragon, Satan, gives power to the Antichrist. Satan is behind him all the way. And this is what Satan has been doing all these years since the creation of man. He's been operating with his big head, thinking that I can have control, that he's really somebody. But he is Just a creature. And I suppose the most humbling thing that we can say about us all is that we are just creatures. We all think that we're somebody. But we are under the power of the almighty sovereign God. He is everything and we are nothing. All that we are is what God gives. Well, Satan thinks that he has power, so he gives his power to this mini-me. He invests him with with authority. Verse 5 says he speaks great blasphemies. Verse 7 says he makes war with the saints. Verse 8 reemphasizes the worship given from verse number 4. And that's just typical Satan. Talking big, talking big, talking big. And big talk comes from big bullies. The Antichrist is the biggest bully of all. He resembles... Or assembles all the gang bangers of these consolidated nations and then begins to root out its opposition. Now, all of this takes place subtly at first. I mean, it's not like the Antichrist appears on the scene and suddenly, wow, everybody is attracted to him like a magnet. No, it takes some time for everyone to give them their confidence. He's innovative. He fools. He appears to be the 
have the best for everyone at heart, but he's nothing different than Satan has always been. He's always been against God. And here we have Satan's last attempt to finally become God. We're taking a look here at the end of the history of this world as we know it. This is the last attempt. This is the last charge of Satan and his false incarnation in this cosmic battle is about to come to a close. When the Antichrist comes, when he finally does appear, how much time is there left before the kingdom of God? Not long. Begins to build power at the beginning of the tribulation. It's seven years long, but it's not till the middle that he gains his greatest strength. It takes a while to consolidate it all. Then he makes his big move. He forces everyone to the worship of him. He rules out all other religion. There is one religion, and it is the worship of the Antichrist, and he has all governmental power consolidated in him. But Revelation says he's got 42 months. When it all comes together, he's a one-termer. He's a lame duck, the last lame duck. Four years, less than four years to rule everything. So... At the end of 42 months, when he's at the zenith of his power, God cracks the slack in the leash, whips it around his legs, and he comes tumbling down. Now, who does he take down with him? Everybody. Everybody that follows him. God's vengeance is against everyone that worships him, that approved how he tortured and killed God's chosen people. Now, Paul's proof that the end times were not there yet, not during the time of the Thessalonians, because nobody had seen the worldwide apostasy. No one has yet seen the Antichrist. Now, history proves the time hadn't come. The countdown of 42 months has not begun. But the big, bad Antichrist is coming. And let me remind you of this again. The Apostle John wrote that even now there are many antichrists in the world. And these many antichrists are the forerunners of this one big antichrist who is come and will rule the world. And so you may ask, well, what are they doing now? Where are they? Well, they're attempting the same things that their great hero will do when he comes to power. Only they don't have as much power as he has. They, they do it on a smaller scale. So you find these antichrists in pulpits of churches today. They're in our churches. They are in our government. And as I said, you can't have any doubt about that. They're in our government. They are in our Congress. They're in the media. Where did you see, where, where have you seen mainstream media that has anything good to say about a Christian? And if you don't have good things to say about a Christian, what do you do? You say bad things about Christians. That's antichrist, isn't it? You're, the media, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, whoever else, PBS, all of them, they're antichrists. You don't need to think that God's not aware of all this. God's still in control. Don't be, don't be in despair because I'm preaching a message like this today. You don't need to be in despair. God knows them. He knows every act of ungodliness they do. When you have time later, go back and review Jude again that we just read. He was on top of this cosmic battle. He wrote information for God's people that were then struggling with persecution and wondering these very same things. And what did he say? Well, in verse 15, let me read that to you again. 
He said, the Lord's coming with the saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. The Bible says that God's judgment is going to fall on this world sooner or later. Forty two months will be up and the end of all of it is the fires of hell. Everyone who follows the Antichrist goes to the same place that he goes. So who will be saved? Who will never suffer defeat? Who will never see destruction? Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. Are you one of them? Are you one that has your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Will you go up with God when Christ comes? Or will you go down to hell with the Antichrist. Is it possible for you to know that you've been chosen by God? That's a miracle, but it's not a mystery. It's not a mystery at all. You can know that your name is in this eternal book by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you can know. If you don't believe, then your name was never written there because only those with their names written Believe. Do you believe? That's that's it. Do you believe? And we invite you today to believe in Jesus Christ and to learn that your name is written in the book of life. You just believe in him. Now, we advise you not to delay. I think just about everybody here is probably church members or you're you claim to be saved. Thank God for that. Nobody knows when the clouds will break open and the glory of God will appear. If you hear the message today and you don't believe, then neither will you believe when the glory of God breaks through. How do I know that? Well, interestingly, we find it right here in Second Thessalonians, verses 11 and 12, chapter 2. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about those who did not believe when Jesus came and they enter into the tribulation and God sends them strong delusion. They will not believe. And if you're caught in that situation, if you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will not believe then. And in those verses that we've just read, maybe rather cryptically to you today because you don't know yet, are reasons number three and four why they weren't living in the time of the Antichrist. We're going to talk about that next time. Thessalonians weren't living in the end times. Reasons one through four prove this. So I can't tell you how long it will be before Christ comes. I I can't tell you to set your watch. I can't tell you to mark it on your calendar. I don't know. But I can tell you this. Neither you nor I want to be found in unbelief when Jesus comes. We do not want to be in unbelief. I don't want to be left here to find out this great mystery. Who is the Antichrist? I don't really care all that much. I need to know about him. But who he is, not really important to me because I know the real Christ. That's the one I'm concerned about. And because I believe I will see the real Christ and I'll be taken up into heaven with him. Let's bow our heads, please. Our Heavenly Father, we 
come to you thanking you so much for salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We're thrilled today that we can stand in the pulpit to speak to your people and to tell everyone that salvation in Jesus Christ is a free offer that can be received by every person in this room. I believe probably, as far as I know, everyone here is saved. But if there should be someone who doesn't know Christ as Savior, we just pray, Lord, that something that's been said today will will jar them, will awaken them, that your Holy Spirit would convict their hearts and show them the gospel of Jesus Christ, that by faith in him and him alone, not by anything that we do, we have salvation. And that is a promise that is an unfailing promise. It's a guaranteed promise. Those that believe will be saved. Those that believe will have eternal life. Lord, speak to our hearts today. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for your son who gave his life for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Groner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.